Here we go. Rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition. Noah Kozlov out here, stuck in New York City, out in the Bay Area. Stuck there, mm-hmm. awaiting child number four's arrival. Is Adam Stanko mm-hmm. in the middle of the country as Seth Hart now. NBA analyst for The Athletic, the former director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks, the former managing editor of Nylon Calculus, the leading basketball analytics site. But back in 2013 is where we're going to start. The blog was called Where Offense Happens. Seth, why and how did you choose that cover photo for the blog to be Kyle Korver diving over Paul George? <laughs> um, that You're asking me to go back. A number of you. First of all, thanks for having me. Hope everyone's staying safe out there. Wash your hands. Remembering back, I felt like at the time Kyle Korver was sort of the the spirit animal for the blog because he he represented the ways in which like a player can be good in so many different ways that you don't always see off the top of your head. Uh, you know, Kyle Korver was. I think we saw this when like Doug McDermott was, was coming into the league, right? He was compared to Kyle Korver because great standstill shooter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, also they bear certain passing resemblance and both went to Creighton. So naturally people compared the two. And what that missed was that Kyle Korver was better at the, every, he wasn't just like the shooter guy. He was better at everything else. He was a better rebounder, a better passer, better off ball mover in better condition, better defender, than, than, you know, than just the, the reputation as like a, uh, you know, a place kicker, like a shooting specialist uh, would be. And so, so that was sort of the, uh, if there was a, an ethic kind of that I was trying to get at, it was like finding those little hidden things or identifying those things. And then I think that was probably, my guess is that was probably the only like horizontal image of Kyle Corver I could find. And so it just happened to be, so it's the one that worked as like a like a banner on top of a page. All right. So as, as I introduce you to Adam Stanko, fellow Nate Walters fan, in February yes. of 14, when I was looking at the blog, you were talking about the Bucks and, and it was at the trade deadline. And you said, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where the Nate Walters train takes them. And when I when I sent that to Adam, I, I had said, Well, I've never I, I didn't even know there was a Nate Walters train, and Adam was actually on that train with you. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, 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 I can't remember why or where it was going, but uh, he, Nate Walters had some had some interesting, I think, had some interesting kind of peripheral and kind of on off and uh, adjusted plus minus stats at the time, if I remember correctly, and and uh, had some good like assist to turnover and, and steals numbers and and all those secondary things it just turned out that he never was able to at least at the nba level was never able to shoot and as we've kind of discovered that's kind of important <laughs> yes that's that's for sure i was a fan of his while he was in college and i remember tweeting at the time that didn't know if his release was quick enough and i guess i'm still wondering if that's if that's <laughs> the case i seth uh i found a quote that you that you had from a while back and you said i'm not going to see the game exactly as a scout or coach does but by using numbers, I can evaluate an entire season of instances and trends very quickly, and I can do it for every game from the past five to 20 years. And I guess my question for you is, how much of the league do you think um, has the right understanding of the balance between analytics and, and understanding the game? Uh, first of all, that's not. I mean, that's a that that yeah, that's an idea that I'm paraphrasing. I think. I think the original quote 
was either Ben Alomar or uh, Rajiv Maheswaran, the uh, the head of uh, Second Spectrum, are, are, are the two people who, in my mind, kind of I, I I first kind of heard that, you know, I can't I I can't watch the game, but I can the same way, but I can watch every game at once. That's kind of the idea. Right. So I want to give right. I want to give. I don't want to sound like I I'm the one who uh, who came up with that that sort of idiom. I don't know. I don't. It's a tough question because I don't know what the right balance is. I think that the um, the anecdotal eye test I do think is still overprivileged. Um, uh, I, I don't know the degree to which that is league wide, the degree to which that is generational um, and the degree to which that is changing. I think it is changing, um, but I think it is still um, uh, kind of the, well, in, in, in my experience of, you know, watching a sample of 5% of this guy's game, dot, 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 is probably given more weight than uh, balancing against, well, Okay, looking at a slightly higher level remove at 100% of this guy's games, or the 99.5% of this guy's games that we have kind of player tracking data from. Dot dot dot. Um, so I, I I think it is yes, it is still overprivileged, but I don't I don't. It's tough to estimate the degree to which that is the case. So as you worked with the Bucks as director of basketball research, when you came on as a consultant, then went on with a full-time job. What were the most, what were types of conversations like with Giannis and, and how did, how were you able to, whether it was one-on-one with Giannis or through the coaching staff, how were you able to communicate the numbers that you saw and to, in order to benefit Giannis's game? So I, I, I don't, and I don't think I'm unique in this. I never had a sort of direct download to player of kind of analytical mm-hmm. information, you should do this. And I, and I think that's, I don't think that's inappropriate. I think that's, uh, there's, a, there's enough things that a player has to take account of that you have to be very careful about how much you burden kind of the, the, the thought process with during game, uh, in game, because if, if something doesn't just happen instantaneously, even if they're doing the right thing, it's too late. So, I think filtering everything kind of through a coaching and player development staff is at this point still probably the right way to go just because there's going to be, there's there's going to be stuff coming at them from a number of different sources that have to be distilled into the, you know, the, the, the amount of things that a a given player can take on and, and operationalize differs player to player, but a knowing how much each player can take on, and B, picking which of those things are most important. That's that's you know that 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 may be a you know a, a, a somewhat technical and academic soundy way of saying it, but that's, that's that's coaching right there. So that's so so that group kind of being the funnel through which the the real nuggets uh, come from and emerge is, is I think at least in basketball. Uh, still the still the best way to go. Uh, baseball, because of the way it's a very station to station game, um, mm-hmm. there is more kind of direct kind of because there is that sort of sort of pause. You know, you can actually, you know, in terms of you can you can do some uh, dare I say game theory with with players. You might you probably wouldn't call it that, 
but in terms of how to think about like what pitch is coming next and where you can you you can actually come up with some heuristics because you have that you know time between pitches to to uh to to make that useful um for some players for other players grip it rip it is probably still best or you could just bang on a drum yes yeah. Or or just cheat. Yeah, that's the, yeah. <laughs> that's the even with that though, you could you like there's the like the reporting seems to indicate that some players didn't want that. You know, not and it wasn't that they didn't want it because it was cheating, it's because they thought it was actually unhelpful to them. Like not just unhelpful, but like anti helpful. I want to stay on the bucks here. The on the and I and I know of course you can always say so much. When it when it came to communicating with players. What were what were the, some of the things that you found when you before you went there and then during your time there about the actual effective ways to communicate analytics to NBA players? I think first of all, just not not calling it analytics is mm-hmm. kind of like that that instantly for a number of reasons just sort of throws up a wall that you're not you're not ready to hear that almost um wh- like what i what the stuff that i that i saw especially in my my uh uh last year with the bucks and i wanted to, to single out one of the assistant coaches uh charles lee who did a, did a lot of the player development work i could i don't know the degree to which this the drills and stuff he was putting player through players through were specifically like intended to you know, impart analytical lessons or whatever, but they were certainly like creating routines in, in players that led to kind of analytically indicated, you know, decisions on the floor. Um, you know, it's, it, uh, I, I can think of, of work he did with, with Chris Middleton in terms of when, when Chris would get into his, his bag, figuring out a way to have that bag include a step back behind the three-point line. Or, or like catching the ball at a place where, if he got to, if a big guy got switched out onto him, that pull up three pointer was a was a viable option, and then just kind of letting Chris's sort of natural feel for the game lead to that kind of better outcome than a 17 footer, just kind of come from from being put in the position and having trained that kind of that routine, so it became all muscle memory but all muscle memory doing the thing that is, you know, from a math standpoint is superior from a, you know, unexpected points uh, situation. So I think that's the, that's sort of the, the conduit with which it happens is you kind of, you have to find a way to identify what the good things are, put players in a position and then train their reactions in those situations so that that's how the, the, the right, endpoints of a possession come about. Seth, I'm curious in regards to to the Bucks, and I mean, I guess this runs for every team, but because you're gathering all of this data and information, I'm curious as to how you decide then what is important. And I, I put it in context of saying, I know, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell's book talking about um, healthcare, and oftentimes when when doctors are trying to assess if people are going to have heart attacks, what are the signs they look for? Sometimes it's too much information, so you're narrowing it down. And I'm curious, in relation to what you were doing, um, in terms of your your draft work, 
what what kind of information were you boiling things down to? What what did you find were the important, significant pieces of of data that that related to who was going to be the best prospect? So this is where it becomes uh, much more art than science, um, because a lot of that stuff, like which of which of these things is important, that's you know that's that's there's there's kind of experience and and i don't want to say feel but kind of judgment based on on weighing various factors um and there's no i I can't give you like a formula for that i can give you like there there are are you know statistical methods you can put through that that can estimate certain things but those estimates are only as good as the the inputs going into them and certainly from players at a non-NBA level, the like the amount we the amount that we know about every shot taken in the NBA in the tracking data era versus the amount we know about a shot taken in any other league in the world is uh, I, I don't know a factor of forty maybe. We just know so much more about the characteristics of, of a shot attempt and. What that means is like, okay, a guy shot X percent from three in college. You don't know a ton about like what, how those shots came and how they were defended and what kind of rhythm they're in, how open they were and, and all those things. And then we don't know about that about the one guy. And we certainly don't know about how that guy was in comparison to everybody else. So it's kind of hard to do an apple to apples comparison, just using like three point shooting percentage to show that this guy is going to is likely to be a good three point shooter or not. I mean, one of the classic examples of this is uh, Derek Williams uh, from when he coming out of Arizona. I want to say he shot like fifty two percent from three his last year in, in college. Um, but when you actually started to dive into it, they were the over what he didn't take that many, and the overwhelming majority of them are were, were like standstill toes right up to the college line threes. Uh, and so then it, it turned out that he's a guy who struggled to adjust to shooting against NBA defense at NBA distance. And, you know, if we, if we had known how to look for that and had the data to look for that, then we might've identified that, okay, this is a guy who's a mediocre free throw shooter who is not taking difficult threes uh, and not very many of them. And if he, if he thought he was a shooter, he'd take more of them also. So there's a lot of indications that that number is, is not real. And, you know, if you back that out, does he go second in that draft? I doubt it. Yeah, he shot, I just looked it up. I wasn't, of course, not even on my radar. 57% from three. Wow. In, uh, when, when you were, when you played your one year at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, what was your experience like on the court and your experience off the court that led you down this path? Um, There's certainly some things that, that helped me down this path. Um, my experience on the court was uh, limited. <laughs> that way. Uh, I was, I was the, uh, I, I don't know. I was somewhere between the, uh, the, the 10th and 14th man on a, on a team that had a pretty rigid eight to nine man rotation. So there wasn't a, <laughs> didn't uh, I, I, I? I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't play that much. I made all my free throws, so that was that was you know that's my claim to fame. Is I I never missed a free throw in college. Um, <laughs> um, On how many attempts? I, uh, four. It's four for four. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, all-time record holder. He can't beat it. Um, <laughs> I think Derek Williams might yeah, be the single, this, yeah, the single season three-point leader yeah. for uh, yeah. at Arizona. It is, it is impossible. Um, you can tie it, but um, so I think more more of it was learning just off the court. Not so much off the court, but kind of learning how to uh, to compartmentalize and, and almost uh, proceduralize, I guess, how to, how especially on defense to defend sort of different actions. Um, the, the 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 head coach at Carlton, Guy Callum, is still there, uh, and he had you know like just in terms of the routines for how to defend like a, a, a cross screen or a down screen or, or a screen to screen or play like, okay, first you do this, then you do that. And, you know, and, and executing each step in turn was, it wasn't easy. And sometimes, you know, I was, I, I was reasonably limited physical ability, which is why I was, you know, where I was in the depth chart. <laughs> um, so I couldn't always execute uh, like those, those instructions, but just understanding the, the intricacies of, of like, okay, I had, you know, you, okay, you jump here to bump the cut, then you lock and trail and you, you try to beat the man to this spot. And then you, you know, you, 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 you flare out and sit down in the stance and okay. And that's, you've done, you've done like nine different things in two seconds and you screw up any one of those then you open yourself up to getting back cut or a guy getting a catch and shoot off or so just, just, understanding like the detail of that i think helped me greatly with sort of the the technical understanding of the game even if it's even if i don't have that level of technical understanding on near the level of an nba player or coach just the understanding of what that technical detail kind of means i think um went a long way in 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 terms of of making me sort of uh, uh, a little humble with my opinions on stuff. Just knowing that there's all the stuff going on that we're not totally capturing with the numbers, and how that might affect the analysis. When you're watching games, what's the stuff that announcers say about how they think a game is going, or what what they're seeing, or maybe even from what they're bringing up in regards to analytics that just makes you pull your hair out? Uh, usually it's, it's the, the thing that, that, uh, is, well, the analytics guys will say dot, 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 and then say something that like, that, that analytics guys would never say, or <laughs> at this point, at this point, just no, is not like, you know, Chris Paul, like, you know, breaks the guy down, gets to the, gets to the right elbow, shoots, the, shoots a leaning jump shot. The analytics guys would say that's a terrible shot. Like, no, that's a great shot for Chris Paul. Like it's, it's Chris Paul can make that shot, but you're, you're bet that's a shot your best player is allowed to shoot. That's not a shot your seventh guy is allowed to shoot. So it's, it's uh, painting with the brush of not really understanding what the, what the prescriptions are. How do broadcasts effectively work that in? Um, I think just spending time to, to understand what the, what this thing is from the people who are actually, who, from the people who are actually doing it. Like, um, you, if you listen to the, the sort of the skeptics describe what analytics is, it sounds really stupid, um, they're, but they're not describing what is actually going on. And so if you're basing your opinion of what, what is happening on what 
I don't know. I like I don't want to name names, but you pick a pick a talking head who says you know blah 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 is ruining the game yada yada yada. Um, then they then go on to describe something that is like counter to what the actual teachings are. You're you're kind of going in with, a, with bad assumptions and bad bad information about what uh, what's actually happening. And so you know it's a lot of the stuff isn't really that difficult. It's not. You know, a lot, the, the shots that that the shots that uh, that quote analytics would say are bad shots are the same shots your high school coach would say are bad shots. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, stop right. shooting contested pull-ups early in the shot cross. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't know if you I don't know if you have a if you have a mute button or whatever on this show or, or but, but you like, can say no whatever shit. you want. Yeah, like like no shit. Like, like everyone knows that's a bad shot. Mm-hmm. So, like the fact that we we've that we've like assigned a value to how bad a shot it is. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not rocket surgery here. Like the bulk of analytic findings are confirmatory of kind of conventional wisdom. And have you ever had a conversation the, with Barkley? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I have, I have a, I, I, my one chance to have a conversation with Barkley would have come uh, about a decade before I actually started writing about basketball, and I I, uh, I missed it. Um, I was a it was a friend's bachelor party in Vegas, and I left the club uh, five minutes before Barkley and his crew walked in, and then my my bachelor friend and and, and crew uh, hung out with uh, Barkley and company for the next couple hours, which I missed. Seth, how 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 good of a poker player were you? Good enough. Um, it's the most important skill in poker is finding people worse than you to play against. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't, I like, I don't, I don't have any great claims to have been like in some sort of wizard, but I was pretty good at playing against people I was better than. So, and, and you, you know, you can only, you only play the games you, they, they put in front of you. And in poker, you can kind of make that choice a little bit. And I, I, uh, was able to to do that, you know, uh, enough to enough to make a living at. I guess is is what I'll say. Mm. You can get you can get into a lot of kind of of, of uh, like you know ego contests about who was better and who had the best moves and, and who played the most solid and and best game theoretic understanding. But you know, on some level, scoreboard. Um, and you know, even on those terms, I wasn't. <laughs> Like no, there were there were people who made a ton more money than me, so it's not like I was I was you know some you know superstar or anything like that. But I was a solid professional. What made you get out? Uh, I I burned out. I, it's a it's a very solitary endeavor. Um, I was playing mostly online, and that's that. Uh, there's a certain sameness to that. Um, playing in person was often more profitable, but um, poker rooms can be pretty miserable places. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, especially when you're doing it as like, if you're doing it as like a diversion, it can be fun, but as a job, it's just, it's, it, it can be a, kind of a, a sea of human misery. So I, I, I just kind of, I, um, I was like, luckily enough, I was, uh, um, kind of already sort of divested from, 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 most of the the websites by the time that uh that the justice department it's it's you know in the in the community it's known as black friday april 
since I want to say 2011, but it might have been 2010. Um, it's a long time ago when when kind of the DOJ should, like uh, shut all the all American access off to all the main sites. Did you pick up Blu-ray with the Bucks? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I it's, it's one of those things that I like. I don't. I don't. I, I don't have a ton of gamble left in me because of having done that for for as long as I did. Yeah, it's, it's understandable. When it comes to the NBA, Alaska isn't usually the first state that, that, that comes to mind, but I'm, I'm going to throw you in the, the Alaskan big three with Trajan Langdon and, oh, Car- and Carlos Boozer with, with Chalmers coming off the bench. Am I missing anybody else? Um, the Brian Gates, who is an assistant coach with Sacramento now, or Minnesota. Uh, he's, an, he's an assistant coach somewhere now. Uh, he's, he's from Anchorage also. Okay. Um, so that's those are the those are the, the the main ones off the top of my head. All right. So so how many how many hoops were there? You grew up shooting on your neighbor's hoop, Mike Freeman's hoop. So how how many hoops in the neighborhood were there? Um, in my neighborhood, I think that might have been at the time the only one. Oh. Um, that was uh, I was it was also sort of a, a you know when I was growing up, it was it was a it was kind of a new development. So it wasn't it weren't a ton of houses there to begin with, but it was, it was kind of the, the only one on the street, but there were only like five houses on the street at the time. So, you know, um, but I will say that uh, I think that the, the, the driveway hoop is not as big a thing in Alaska as it is some places just for weather reasons. That's understandable. Uh, bas- yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Ba- basketball itself is, is pretty uh, pretty big in Alaska, especially in kind of the rural areas, uh, just because for you know you you, the, you know kids are want to play a sport. Um, basketball doesn't really require a ton of equipment or people, so mm-hmm. it's actually a, a it's a like ba- basketball in, in rural Alaska is kind of the sport. Um, so there's been uh, uh, it's like a Thirty for Thirty did a short, um, let's say about five years ago. Um, about it was based around a, a, a kid from um, I forget he's from from somewhere in the Kuskokwim region if I remember correctly uh, and the the short is called I am Yupik and it's a really it's a it's a really kind of interesting look at at, at some of uh, at, at, at how how kind of big a deal like small town hoops is in Alaska. All right, so on the topic of Alaska, but not but not basketball related. You you were an educational consultant. I want to make sure I get this right. With issues of cross cultural communication and learning styles in Alaska, and but the the interesting part to me is this was co founded with your mom Patricia, who has a PhD in cultural anthrop- anthropology. Yeah. Um, okay, so I got that right. So yeah. my question is, what are the challenges of of co founding <laughs> an organization with your mother? Yes. <laughs> uh, no, it's the uh, skill-wise, it's it's it was it was a good overlap. I mean, obviously, there's some just some there's just obviously some weirdness like involved in 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 that, especially if you're in a meeting where you're, you know, you well as as she said, like as, as Patricia <laughs> said, as Mom said, as I don't know, like. Um, right. Like, thankfully, thankfully, we worked with the same kind of clients enough that it was only weird for a little bit, and then it was like, 
then they they just they they kind of like you know once the once the client started interchangeably using like started interchangeably saying patricia or your mom then it was kind of you know it's no big thing what what is the the education culture in alaska well no so specifically uh we're talking about like a lot of the work we did was um uh, the Western style of, of, of learning and the traditional uh, indigenous style of learning don't always mesh perfectly. And especially in rural Alaska, uh, uh, the Alaska Native student body uh, has, has, you know, across a range of measures, has not historically had great measures of achievement. And so one of the theories for um, kind of addressing that is to uh, find a way to meld the two styles together to um, allow for kind of the way the students, especially in rural Alaska, kind of live their daily lives to impact the style of learning a little bit more than kind of the 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 sort of the westernized, uh, heavily standardized test-based approach that we're probably more used to. Um, so that was a lot of the work we did was to try to uh, find ways to meld those styles in a way that that led to better outcomes. It's interesting you you bring up this two styles and how you find the the best way to make it work and almost using an analytical approach. It's easy then for people who write articles about you to then make the the next assumption that oh that I, helps because that's the field you got into. But how much was that actually the case? Oh, no, absolutely. It's, it is, I mean, it's, I, I, you know, I was working in cross-cultural communication then, and in some ways I still am. In a lot of ways I still am. So yeah, I don't think that's not a, I don't think that that's a, like, it's an obvious line to draw, but it's also the correct line to draw. Um, there's, there, because a lot of the issues, you know, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, it, it's as much about the, the translation and language as it is about the findings. It's more so, I think. In terms of it actually being useful, and so figuring out how to um, again, how to using the correct language so that a, 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 you know, exec, a coach, a player, um, a, a medical staffer uh, can uh, can uh, can understand, um, you know, what you're talking about in a way that is familiar to their kind of experience and vernacular. Like that's that's the job. You got a few more, Seth, before. We wrap it up with the question that we always close with on rejecting the screen. So a few questions, pretty unrelated in, in when it comes to the topics. How do you, how can you use analytics models that you develop to evaluate coaches? No. Okay. <laughs> like no, no. I, I, I that's a flippant answer, but um, yeah. I, I don't think we. I, and I've written about this uh, at, at times this year on, uh, on the, the athletic. Like, what are the what what does a coach do, and how do and how does what we can measure on the court directly correlate with what a coach does? How do we, how can we ex like extract that from the players he has, from the what other constraint other constraints he might be working under, in terms of you know injuries and, and you know. Uh, chemistry issues and, 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 you know, front office, uh, um, requests for, um, you know, especially as a, when, when, uh, um, 
think I think John Hollinger and I have talked about this a fair like the better your team is, the harder like the the, the harder it can be to to kind of try stuff. And whereas if your your team is at a, at another point, then 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 you know a coaching staff is probably a little more willing to try stuff and get a look at guys and 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 so on and so forth. But whereas you know from a you know a front office a personnel decision standpoint, you kind of always want to get a look at you know okay is this is this a guy we think we could can grow into something? Is this a guy we think that other teams might be interested in? Uh, and we can we can you know we can trade him to you know improve our team now. Um, what are we giving up if we do that? Just having finding ways to develop that information is always something that you know a, a front office might want, but that is um, and and to some degree, like some coaches will will play along or they won't. And you know if that means that they're playing quote suboptimal lineups, you think that they're does that make them a worse coach? Um, I think that makes them a better coach in terms of being like effective within a team structure, within a organizational structure, not just like the team uh, is, is kind of being, you know, willing to, to, you know, work with like longer term organizational goals, but you can't see that in a model. Um, and so then you, you come up with things where are, right, depending on how you do it, the, the coaches that, that look best because they ride their best players into the ground. I mean, I don't think I need to name names. I think everyone listening probably thought of the same person the first time. <laughs> uh, and, you know, <laughs> is that, is that good coaching? Just oh well, you know, play, play him 44 minutes and play my best player 44 minutes and look at, look how good I am. Um, you know, that, that, that for some kind of models that might tickle the model, but, we don't really have the counterfactual of okay, what does your team look like in a year and a half if you play that guy 36 minutes and try to find, use those other eight minutes a game to, to give other guys experience and or try to find a guy who can give you good minutes and also those 36 minutes are on a per minute basis more productive than the 44 than the 44 he's playing before. Why were the Bucks so good this year? Uh, well, I mean, you have the best player that helps or like not the i mean i don't i'm not a big believer in player rankings so you have a guy who is you know when when you're doing like bracketology you have like seed lines and so i i i'm, I'm a much more believer in player tiers and uh and so that very top tier line it's it's Giannis, it's lebron you can argue whether you know whether Kawhi or james harden or one or two other guys you know fit on that line but you know, the, they certainly have a guy there um, that helps. Um, and then they just have a, they have a, uh, um, I think it starts with, with a, if a defense that has really figured out the, the mass of the modern game um, in terms of, you know, we talked about it's a three point revolution, but the bucks are, you know, this, this season were historically good at protecting the rim, protecting the paint. Um, and I, I like you know, in, in audio form, it's it's kind of hard to to uh, to illustrate the degree to which they they're they're in terms of both percentage uh, allowed on shots near the rim and frequency or the lack of frequency of those shots. How much of an outlier this year's Bucks team were? Do you want to work for a team again? Um, I I think that in the right circumstance, yes. Okay. Um, it's it, the uh, the 
there there are certainly like lifestyle factors that are better being outside of a team. Mm-hmm. Um, there are competitive itches that are satisfied inside of a team. I think that this is something that anyone who has worked for a team and then done something else will tell you is you'll know a lot more about what you need that that experience to look like for it to be the right job uh, for you. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the, the job is a good job or a bad job. It's, it's, or, or the right job or the right, wrong job. It's the right or wrong job for, you know, right now. I mean, I have, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old and, and that's a, those are, those are tough ages for, you know, uh, you know, a family that, that didn't come up in the professional sports, like mm-hmm. lifestyle. Right. Um, just in, in terms of, of what it, you know, what the strain it put on him. So that was a, you know, that was a huge factor in deciding to do something else. But, you know, at another point in life that, that those burdens are different. What's the, for lack of a better term, coolest part of working for an NBA team that you didn't even think about before you, you joined the organization? Ooh, um, I think having a, 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 a an NBA court and a rack of balls like twenty feet from my desk is certainly like <laughs> I, I need to you know I need to I need to I, I need to give this a think. Well, I can do it while I'm going to go shoot some free throws. That's right. you know that's that's uh um and and you know uh, uh pick up basketball was a pretty big part of our of our I don't want to say daily life but our a regular part of our work week certainly was 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 uh pickup games being worked in so that was uh that was cool and then like also just like seeing how how like hard the guys work is uh is is you know it's something you know but then you when you see it up close it's it uh it's it is it is gratifying to see that it's not like that you know you want to you want to believe that there that there's that there's you know meritocracy in the world and and uh you know, seeing seeing guys as dedicated to their crafts as as at least the the players that I had a chance to observe and work with were um, is uh, it, it it's 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 good to see that there's some areas where that is true. We talk about all this different information that you have access to and that you're diving into and and moving forward with. And I think I asked John Hollinger this question, but what's the one area of data that you feel like we really don't understand enough about yet. And that if you got your hands on that, Oh, it, 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 it would be gold. So I have, I, my, mine's almost a, a more lo-fi answer. I wish we had audio. I wish we mm. had access to the, to the, the, like in some way. And so if it was good enough that you could, you know, you could, you could even tie it to specific players. Like I think that, communication on the floor and from the floor to the bench and vice versa is like, you know, especially in terms of defense, I think that's a huge sort of untracked variable at this point. And I think, you know what, I think fans would, you know, if it wasn't just proprietary to to teams, I think fans would like to hear that too. And it's almost like that all access look, but it can be used for so many different purposes. Seth, we close with this every episode, rejecting the screen. So give us the, one guy, and it can't be Jordan. Give us the one guy that you would choose to reject the screen, go ISO, get you a bucket in a must-win situation. Oh boy! Well, I mean, the 
can I, let me see. It's a tough question. Um, I mean, right now, I would have to say Kawhi Leonard. Um, like, all time, it's maybe not the right answer, but it's my favorite player of all time, so I'll go with it, is Reggie Lewis. So, um, and I, again, I know that's not the right answer, but that's that's it's my favorite player of all time, and obviously, you know, is was kind of cut short in his prime, uh, mm-hmm. but but uh, but a, a really unique player who was who I think that that you know people could would would enjoy watching a lot today, um, just because when people complain about the uh, wrongly I think complain about the stylistic similarities between teams. He was a very sort of unique player in terms of having a, a almost a I don't want to say a herky jerky style, but played at a at a uh, sort of a different rhythm than 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 mm-hmm. uh, than the than than a lot of players did. Um, there's like there's one one move that he did all the time that uh, that I I still don't see players use today. You normally, you see a, a player will pump fake, bring the ball back down, and go back up. He would pump fake pause and then go up so he jumped while the the defender was still in the air but knowing that by the time he got to the top the defender would be coming down mm. and i just i and mm. i i just it's sort of i don't i don't think a lot of uh, uh it's hard to again it's one of those things that that's hard to describe in, in audio but it's like i i always describe it as as a quarter beat off rhythm from from how how most players play and so i thought i was i was always very drawn to that yeah, I like that. I mean, and now there, it's a lot of the pump fake, get the defender in the air, but you haven't left your feet, and then just jump into him and get the foul called. And I, I mean, and hopefully that's something that's that's going to go away at some point. Soon. I hope so. Um, oh, I hope. So. I mean, so there's there's always to me there's there's been a difference between if you get a defender in a bad situation and you pump fake and you get them to jump at you, then you know, good job you. Mm-hmm. If you if you get them to jump up and you have to like lean into them that should be an offensive foul. Like the, like people always used to complain about Paul Pierce, like getting, getting, but he was always great at like, you know, getting into his move and taking a little, like little sidestep, little backward step and then pump faking. So that the guy would be jumping at him. And so the guy would like, yeah, okay, fine. He went a little to the left or right to make sure he got landed on, but he still beats you enough that you're jumping at him. Whereas some of like a lot of the ones today are a guy will jump straight up or be going, like parallel to the player and you have to like reach way out or jump into a guy. And those, those, those those are, those are unsightly BS. If you ask me. All right. Well, our best to your wife, kids be safe, stay healthy. Let me know if you ever track down where the Nate Walters train ended up going (laughs) after February 14. Keep me posted on that. Seth, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Let me know. Yeah. Right. Let Adam know. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks a lot. This was fun guys. So do you think this conversation passed the eye test or the, <laughs> the ear, the ear test? I mean, I do, I do think it, it's, oh, I, I enjoyed a lot of the conversation and I did, I did like the, well, if how the, how broadcasters can work this into a broadcast and into the production is actually spending time with the people who are doing this. The, the analytics folks, the research people at the at the team level and even at the league level. You wouldn't call a basketball game if you never watched basketball. So why would you criticize something or try to talk about something that you know 
nothing about without having spent time with those people. I'm not, I wouldn't go on the air criticizing a science experiment that I never <laughs> tried. Uh, that's a funny thought, actually. It, it, well, and it's, it, w- it was an interesting answer and perspective, too, because we think about that a lot, and we've certainly talked about it a lot. And usually the response to that that answer, well, okay, what, what do you tell the broadcasters? How would you improve it? Most of the time it's, well, they need to have a better understanding of X or they need to have a better understanding of Y, um, you know, or of the axis if we're really going to start to mm-hmm. get into academic terms. I, but the the interesting part was Seth took it to the other level, which was like, okay, talk to people, <laughs> which really when you think about it is – is true of so much of what we end up criticizing and not understanding is just talk to people and and figure it out. But what I found most interesting about the conversation is just how his mind works and how he's thinking about things. And, and you can see why he's been so successful in not just his understanding of basketball analytics, but also the work that he was doing in Alaska and mm-hmm. being a poker player. And just because his mind works in, in such a different way and, and tries to come up with conclusions, but also is more just mining through the information and really digging into the question that you ask and listening, which obviously a lost, lost art in today's society. And so, I don't know, I, I thought it was really fascinating to hear how his brain works. All right, so if you want to hear how our other guests' brains work, just go back and listen to all the mm-hmm. other issues episodes of rejecting the screen the going iso edition so you'll see it in the feed you'll just see going iso and then the name richard jefferson doug gottlieb peter vesey ryan russillo chad finn media writer for the boston globe pj carlissimo brendan haywood anthony morrow and so many more so we're gonna have all these going iso episodes for you every tuesday and thursday throughout so if you want to suggest a guest, get into the reviews on iTunes and let us know. Click five stars and leave us a guest suggestion. Or if you've got a contact for a guest, pass it along. Let us know. Adam's on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. On Instagram, it's at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. And also, you can listen to everything else that's going on on the Lockdown Podcast Network. It's Locked On NBA five days a week. You've got your team specific podcast every day still still have locked on fantasy hoops with josh lloyd hollinger and duncan with john hollinger and nate duncan comes out every monday and now that most of you folks are probably listening at home in some form and if you have a if you don't want to just walk around the house with the headphones in or have your phone out listening while you're doing dishes you can usually just ask your smart device at home whether it's google or alexa you can just say alexa play rejecting the screen and it works i'm hoping that my alexa doesn't go off in the living room as as i say that so there's plenty of ways to keep up with what we've got going on and we hope that you're all hanging in as well adam thanks pal you're the best